or at least the past few weeks, which uh, that's really good news because it means uh, less people have COVID or, or are sick. So if you're just getting here, you can go ahead and grab a handout at the back table. Welcome, everyone. This morning, we are in the fifth week of our series on the threefold office of Christ. And when I say the threefold office of Christ, I'm referring to how Christ is our perfect and ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And so in this series, we're following pretty closely the outline of a book called Prophet, Priest, and King, a biblical theology of the offices of Christ by Richard Felcher. And in the coming weeks, we're going to continue to both define the Old Testament role of prophet, priest, and king, and the significance of those offices. And the purpose is so that we can see how Christ perfectly fulfills each of these. And then we're also going to, of course, look at the implications for us today. So that's where we're going. And this week and the next week are both going to focus on showing how Christ is the ultimate and perfect prophet. We, I feel like we get a different crowd each, uh, or at least recently there's been a different crowd each week for Sunday school. Was anyone here when I talked about why the threefold office of Christ was significant to Calvin? Can anyone remember what I said by chance? Anna might know. That'd be kind of cheating. No, you're fine. No, you're fine. It, it would have been cheating for you to answer anyway. So. I was saying, does anyone remember why the threefold office of Christ was important to John Calvin? That's okay. And Sabrina, I, I, I see I you stewing. Okay, that's all right. So, no worries. But, but this is significant because I, I want to remind us that this is not merely just a, a theological exercise, but but to Calvin, he was one of the main ones who first kind of like systematized this way of understanding uh, Christ's work. Um, and for him, he said that it was important because it gives us a firm basis for salvation and rest in Christ. So understanding how Jesus is our perfect prophet, because we are ignorant and we need to know the way of salvation. He's our perfect priest because we're guilty. We need atonement. Uh, we, need, we, we need something done with our guilt. Um, and our perfect king because we're, we're weak, powerless against sin, Satan, the devil. So for Calvin, this was, this was not just some way to flex on people, his uh, theological acumen. This was this was for his joy in Christ, and, and I commend it to us as well. This is for our joy and our confidence and our assurance in Christ. So, prophets, priests, and kings were the anointed leaders among God's people in the Old Testament, and so it's fitting that the Messiah, or literally the anointed one, should embrace all three of these offices in his person. So I know this is what y'all came for, but starting out, I want to I want us to turn our attention uh, to the note sheet, and I want to I want us to read together the questions and answers uh, to get us started. So I'm going to read uh, the question question 22 and 23 of Spurgeon's Baptist Catechism, and then question 65 of the Children's Catechism, and I want you guys to read read the answers in response to help get us in get us in the right mindset. So question 22. 
What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his state of humiliation and exaltation. Good. And this week we're focusing on how he executes the office of a prophet. So, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Amen. Good. And Christian, why do you need Christ as a prophet? I need Christ as a prophet. Amen. Thank you, guys. So, we're going to jump into now uh, the, yeah, what, what's following on your notes, Christ as prophet, mighty in word and deed. Um, and as we do that, does anyone remember what two things the work of the prophet centered on? Does anyone remember what two things the work of the prophet centered on? Was it all about miracles? No. Was it all about no? Okay. Like one thought is maybe like speaking God's word to the people. Yeah. Teaching is really God's good. Will. Yeah, that's really good. God's word. That's God's huge. Word. That's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like warning or rebuke people. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I would I would kind of put that under the category of God's word. Um, but yeah, that's really good. Really good. Yeah, the second one I would say is, is prayer. The work of the prophet centers on the word of God and prayer. And, and this is significant because, as we know, our sin separates us from the presence of God. And not only that, but it makes it difficult for us to hear his voice. Because even when we hear his voice in his word, sin makes it hard for us to actually listen. Our, our desires are opposed to God and his will for us in and of ourselves. We want to be our own gods. We want to be the ones who define what's right and wrong. And that's why it's God's mercy and compassion that he doesn't leave us in a state of confusion. He sets out to restore what was lost at the fall. Even though we deserve, we, we don't deserve for anything to be restored, but he sets out to restore and this restoration includes the role of prophet, both in the history of salvation, and it includes Jesus's work as the perfect and ultimate prophet. So, there's two more aspects of the prophetic ministry that are important to remember. And it's one, a, the prophet receives direct revelation from God. And two, the prophet preaches the requirements of the covenant to the people. And so part of that is included in what, what my brother over here mentioned, uh, talking about the judgment of God, because he's, he's talking about covenant, the, the, the covenant requirements, um, what is required to obey, and the blessings of obedience, and the curses, the judgment of disobedience. So we'll keep that in mind as we go on. So now we're going we're gonna to spend a second talking about my buddy John the Baptist, or J-Bat, as I like to refer to him. Um, this, uh, this seemingly random guy comes on the scene in Israel, and he, he's preaching in the wilderness, baptizing people. He's saying, 
the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so, of course, people were wondering, who is this guy? And in John chapter 1, the priests and Levites, they ask him, who are you? And then in their conversation, they, they go on to ask him, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? What, what do you guys think is significant about this question? What, what can we learn from the very fact that this question was asked? Yeah, that's right. I don't know if there's anything you could add to that. But that, that was really good. Because <laughs> wasn't there like in the Old Testament, they had, after Elijah or something, there was supposed to be another prophet that they were looking for? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, that's where I'm trying to go. Yeah. So that question shows they were looking for a prophet. They were looking for the prophet. And this points us back to a couple weeks ago. We spent a lot of time in Deuteronomy 18. And I think this, this points us to that passage. Um, the, their hope for a prophet goes back to there where, where Moses said, um, I'm reading from Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 15. Um, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then Moses goes on to say in verses 18 and 19, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so they we're looking for a coming prophet like Moses, something that the other prophets, we'll, we'll talk about this more later, but the other prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, even Elijah and Elisha, they were not, they were like Moses in some ways, but they, they were not truly a prophet like Moses, a prophet who spoke to God face to face, who was the mediator of a covenant. So another passage that, helped contribute to their hope for the prophet is Deuteronomy 34. I'm going to read verse 10 through 12. Actually, I'll have someone else read it. Y'all can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34. And could someone read uh, verse 10 through 12 for me nice and loud so that the recording can hopefully pick it up? 10 to 12? Yeah, 10 to 12. Thank you. And there has not arisen a prophet since uh, in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, not like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Mm, thank you. Yeah. So they were still waiting. There had not arisen a prophet like Moses yet. And at this point in time, prophetic revelation had actually ceased completely for hundreds of years by the time John the Baptist arrived. It had been, God had been silent. And so they were antsy for this to end. They were waiting for the prophesied prophet 
of Deuteronomy 18, who would finally speak God's word and restore his people. So we know that John the Baptist was not the prophet, but it doesn't mean he didn't have a significant role. He was the one who was preparing the way for and witnessing to the prophet. And this is exactly how he even understood his role. He accomplished this by proclaiming the coming of the kingdom and baptizing those who confess their sin. And it's really crazy. He even reluctantly baptized Jesus. This is not because Jesus had sin to confess, but this was so that, according to Matthew 3.15, Jesus would fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had to be baptized to both fulfill the law and to identify with sinners. Like prophets in the Old Testament, we talked about how prophets received a call from God and were often, um, maybe always, but at least it's recorded for us that they were often anointed with oil. And so this is, Jesus has his calling moment at his baptism. This was his kind of call to ministry and his anointing, yet as the greatest prophet, he was not just anointed with oil. He was, he was anointed as the Holy Spirit descended and came down upon him. So this is helpful because being a prophet, it's not like becoming a firefighter or the president of the U.S. It's not like a little, a little Israelite boy would be like, Mommy, when I grow up, I want to be a prophet. That's not how it worked. Prophets were set apart by God. It was not something you chose to be. It was something that God God set you apart for. And so here, even though Jesus is different from a mere man who is a prophet, we still see that Jesus, at the baptism, when, when God speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, it is, it is, a, it is his calling, his being clearly set apart um, and anointed by the Holy Spirit. And so we have, of course, we have G- Jesus internally knew himself to be God the Son, God who had taken on human flesh. Yet it's helpful that here we see also an external recognition by the Father himself, the Holy Spirit himself, uh, affirming that. Um, I want to I go to Jesus' transfiguration. Um, could you guys turn to Luke chapter 9? I want to spend a little bit of time here looking at how... Um, how Jesus' role as a prophet is highlighted. So who could um, read Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, nice and loud? Awesome, thank you. 28 through 36? Yeah, that's right. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went about the mountain. While he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of the departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome by sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying, while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. 
And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Mm, thank you. What sticks out to you guys here? Is there anything you see that may be significant with regards to Jesus' role as prophet? What do you guys think? And poor Peter, he was trying to be so hospitable, but uh, Luke's like, he is not knowing what he said. Poor guy. Anything significant? Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, would you, do you have any, anything to elaborate on that? Or? Yeah, yeah, amen. Yeah, that's so good. I, I think that's huge. I think, welcome Andre and Emmy. Um, <laughs> good morning. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. I, I was thinking, that, that was one of the main things I saw too. And, and think about how it lines up with Deuteronomy 18. Um, because in Deuteronomy 18, uh, uh, let me find it. Yeah, it, you know, it says, it is to him you shall listen. Um, and so it, it's, it's like down to the very words matching that, it bringing to mind the, the promised prophet. Do you guys see anything else? Anything else? Uh, anything significant about it being Moses and Elijah? Any thoughts on that? Of all the people who could have appeared, why Moses and Elijah? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, that's really good. You know, Moses, he is the foundational prophet of the Old Covenant. You know, he's the one who, who uh, prophesied of a coming prophet like him. Um, he also represents the whole law. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And then there's Elijah. He's kind of like the, the consummate Old Testament prophet after Moses. He's not a prophet like Moses in the way Jesus is, yet, you know, of all the other prophets, Isaiah, Elisha, certainly Elijah, it, to me, he... He's the goat. He's the greatest. Um, he didn't even die. So, so yeah, he's the pinnacle of the Old Testament prophets who came after Moses. Um, and he also, like, like what Jesus is doing, he, he stood firm for the truth of God in the face of idolatry. And, of course, performed many signs and wonders. So I think, yeah, anything else before I go on? Anything else significant from the transfiguration? that sticks out to you or that kind of highlights Jesus's role as prophet? I think it's also significant that God says, this is my son. I think in Matthew's account, it says, this is my beloved son, my chosen one, with whom I am well pleased. It goes on to say in Matthew, I think this, it, it, it says, listen to him, ties it to the role of prophet, but we're seeing here that these titles go beyond just that of a prophet. We know this is not just the next John the Baptist type figure. This is something Jesus is much greater. So that's helpful too. One thing that I think is, is really cool, this is a connection I, I didn't notice at first. Uh, a teacher brought this out for me. Uh, in Luke 9, 
when it says in verse 31 that that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, that could also be translated as exodus. It could also be translated as exodus. And I think that is profound because of how that's another connection to Moses. Um, and because Jesus is about to go through a greater exodus, an exodus in which he defeats sin and death rather than merely that of Moses, like delivering in Jesus's exodus, he actually delivers his people from sin and death, not just temporary slavery to Pharaoh. And then finally, Jesus, uh, his face shone like the sun, it says in Matthew's account. And does that remind you of anything that happened in Moses's life? Can anyone think? Yes. Whenever Moses left meeting with God on the mountain, his face was like radiant and beaming or something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, really good. Really good. Were you looking at my notes earlier? No. (laughs) All right, just making sure. Um, Yeah. So back to back to Big JB John J Bap. John the Baptist was preaching a message of repentance and confession so that people can be right with God in preparation for the coming one. And so in this, he is like Elijah in his ministry of confrontation. Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Elijah confronted the wicked King Ahab, um, the wicked Jezebel. And so in the same way, John the Baptist was willing to confront the leaders of the Jewish people. He does this in Matthew 3, 7 through 10. And because of this, Jesus says, Jesus identifies him as in the same vein as Elijah. And then John also proclaimed that the one who comes will come in judgment. He will clear the threshing floor with his winnowing hook and will baptize with fire. This is a figure of judgment and he will burn the chaff. In Matthew three eleven through twelve, then John also says that Jesus, or he says that the coming one will gather the wheat into the barn, which is a picture of salvation. And so, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the prophets of old, they had two main things that they spoke about. They spoke about God's coming judgment, and they spoke about God's coming salvation. And so John just like them, is highlighting these two aspects that are coming, judgment and salvation. And so this, this is really interesting because when John was in prison, he's hearing about the deeds of Jesus, and he actually sends his disciples to Jesus to ask whether Jesus is really the one or whether they should look for another. So John... John's been preaching the message of, hey, judgment is coming and salvation is coming. Jesus arrives on the scene. John baptizes him. Jesus starts his ministry. John ends up getting thrown in prison. But now John, it's like he's confused. He sends messengers to ask Jesus, wait, are you really the coming one? Or should we look for another? Based on what I've just said, why? Why do you think John may have been confused about Jesus' identity at this point. Andrew, um, it is confusing you for me. I don't know the answer to that question because I know yeah. like when he first 
when Jesus first arrived on the scene, mm-hmm. John the Baptist was like, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he yes. knew, right? He knew that yeah. was him. So it's interesting, like, yeah. so anybody who can answer that, yeah, that'd be really helpful. That's really helpful. Yeah, that that elevates so, the tension. It's like he, he knew he knew yeah. then. Why is he? Uh, why is his? He, he's going through like a crisis of faith. Like, what's going on? So, I don't know the answer to this question, but John MacArthur says that he did know. He knew the answer to the question, but he was having his disciples ask Jesus anyways. Okay. So John yeah. John the Baptist was not confused about the answer to the question, but he wanted his disciples to go and ask Jesus. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Josiah has a thought. He cannot articulate it yet. Was yeah. He, was he okay. just wondering um, why things were moving at the pace? Why not set up your kingdom and do everything now? Yeah. That, that's a good. That's a really good thought. I, I think. I think that 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 could be part of it. Um, yeah. You know, you bring up an interesting point, Will. I, I think part of this is, is, is speculation. It could be that John the Baptist did know. But I think that based on what we've just said, that, you know, John saw the, the coming one associated with judgment and salvation. I think that there's a good chance that as John gets thrown in prison, you know, he's been faithful. He gets thrown in prison and he's like, whoa, what's going on? I thought, I thought the coming one was supposed to come not just with the offer of salvation, but also with judgment judgment on God's enemies and and Jesus responds emphasizing the deeds of salvation that are being accomplished um, he talks about uh, like in Luke 4 he he cites uh, you know the the uh, uh, what does he say let me go to Luke 4 real quick he's citing Isaiah 61 he's talking about like the blind sea uh the poor have the good news preached to them. So he's emphasizing deeds of salvation that are being accomplished. And John the Baptist is like, well, yeah, but where's the judgment, perhaps? And, and so the delay of judgment, I think, could be why John the Baptist was confused. Because remember, when, when Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, Jesus reads, reads from the scroll of Isaiah... And he quotes Isaiah 61. Um, he, let me go there real quick. So Jesus, so Jesus, read it, starting in Luke, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. What's really interesting about this is that he stops right before the very next phrase in Isaiah reads, and the day of vengeance of our God. So he ends the quote right before the judgment part. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but then stops before it says, in the day of vengeance of our God. And so, we, hindsight is twenty twenty. We, sitting here today, we know that at Jesus' first coming, he came to die. He came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his, 
his life as a ransom for many. We know that the great day of judgment is delayed until he comes again. But I think that we can understand why John the Baptist could be confused. He wasn't crazy for being confused about why Jesus wasn't displaying more judgment. It, it, this may have been because he was a careful reader of his Bible that he was confused. Um, his Bible at the time was only the Old Testament. But if he was reading it carefully, he very well could, could have been confused that, you know, why, why is the judgment not happening yet? So instead, he needed to be corrected. Um, Jesus, uh, Jesus says in his response to John's followers, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So the offense may have to do with the grace of salvation that was coming to sinners through Jesus. It could be offensive to some that instead of Jesus coming and right away judging, that instead patience, mercy, grace was being extended to, to many so that the kingdom, the gospel, could spread to the ends of the earth. Any questions about that before we go on? All right, good. So, part B of your notes, a prophet like Moses. Jesus is identified, um, after Jesus rises from the dead, he's walking down, or he's walking along the road to Emmaus uh, with a couple disciples who don't even recognize him. And those two identify him, or they identify Jesus, that they're talking about him, they don't yet know it's him, but they identify him as a prophet mighty in word and deed. And so, again, many parallels between Moses and Jesus confirm that he is the prophet like me, sent from God, and mentioned in Deuteronomy 18.15. Unlike the other prophets, Moses experienced God speaking to him clearly and directly, even face to face, as Deuteronomy 34 says. We, of course, know that Jesus had an even closer relationship to the God of Moses because God, the God of Moses, is his own father. Before the world began, he was in his presence and shared his glory, according to John 17, 5. Moses performed mighty deeds in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, yet Jesus performed miracles and mighty deeds in the deliverance of his people from the power of sin and death. And so these parallels show that Jesus is the prophet like Moses, but he's greater in at least two respects. He's greater because, one, he brings a greater deliverance. It is not just temporary, it is eternal. It is, it is from our greatest enemies. Like Pharaoh was not the Israelites' greatest enemy. Think about how even after they're delivered from Pharaoh, they find out that their worst enemy is actually the sin inside their own hearts. Because even after their deliverance, they, they time and time again fail to be faithful to the God who had delivered them. Um, they fall into idolatry. They, they don't listen to his word. And so their greatest enemy was truly themselves. And so praise God that Jesus does not just deliver from the Roman Empire, but he delivers us from our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And then Jesus is, of course, greater than Moses 
because he has more glory, because he is God the Son. We don't have time to, to read it now, but you can write down, if, if you want to look at this later, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Another great Moses-Jesus parallel passage. So, it's also interesting that when John the Baptist denies that he is the Christ, he is asked whether he is the prophet. And so this shows that some people in Jesus' day, they distinguish the Messiah from the prophet. Some might have identified the two together, but some were thinking that there were going to be two different characters coming. They were looking for not just the prophet, but also Messiah. And so I think it's really cool that Jesus exceeded expectations in this way. The Messiah and prophet did not end up being two separate people in redemptive history, as some thought. Instead, both roles, and of course that of ultimate and eternal priest and king, are all fulfilled in Jesus. And in hindsight, we can see the necessity of this. Because in order to be the Messiah and Savior, and fully save people who are lost like us, who are weak, guilty, we do need a mediator who is prophet, priest, and king. And so praise God that, that Jesus fulfilled all of these. Jesus defines his ministry as that of prophet when he talks of being sent by the authority of the Father and speaking only what the Father has given him to speak. You look at John, John 12, 49 to 50 for that. And remember, this, this right here fits the most, I think the most simple definition we could give of a prophet is God's spokesman. Prophet is someone who speaks the words that God gives him. And so here, Jesus, Jesus is identifying himself as the prophet with that. We, we also see Deuteronomy 18.15 cited twice in Acts. Um, we don't have time to read it in depth, but um, just note that Stephen in Acts 7 cites this. And it seems clear that he is citing uh, Deuteronomy 18 to refer to Jesus because in his sermon, the whole point is that he's trying to show the people who are about to stone him, he's trying to show them that it is their very generation who has betrayed and murdered Jesus, the Son of God. And then in Acts 3, Peter also cites Deuteronomy 18 in a sermon that's explaining the significance of his healing of the lame beggar. And so... Again, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Deuteronomy 18 text. So I want to, I want to, we're going to end talking about how Jesus is a prophet mighty in the word. And for once, I think I'm going to get through all my notes, which is good. Um, so during his earthly ministry, Jesus was mighty in his use of the word of God. Can anyone think of any examples of that? What's an example of Jesus showing his mastery of the word of God. I think of every time he says, you've heard it said of old, mm -hmm. and then he expands. Yeah. In, in Matthew, what, five? Yeah, that's so good. You know, like he, he shows what the text really yeah. encompassed. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount, that's so good. Yeah, really good. Anything else? Presentation of Jesus. Nice. Yeah, yeah, amen. That's really good. 
Yeah, both those are so good. I was I was thinking the temptation um, myself, but but I think you're you're absolutely right too, Sabrina. So yeah, the devil tried to twist God's word, and yet Jesus at each temptation he he meets it with a reference to God's word with the true true interpretation, true application, and so this is also amazing because you know a, a few weeks back we talked about how Adam and Eve failed in their role in their roles as prophet. Um, Adam did not. Adam seemed to have communicated God's word deficiently to Eve um, because when the devil comes to her and contradicts God's word, Eve Eve says, uh, she says, yeah, God's, God's uh, said we can't eat that fruit. Uh, if, we, if we eat it, we'll surely die. If we even touch it, we'll surely die. The problem is, is God never said anything about touching it. So she was mis, misquoting or mis, misunderstanding God's word in some way. We don't really know how exactly that happened, but I think it's, it's likely that it points to a deficiency in Adam's communication to her. And so here we see Jesus, Jesus succeeding where Adam and Eve failed. Adam and Eve failed to correctly handle the word of God, but Jesus used the word of God to defeat the devil. So that's amazing to see. And then this is this is more in line with what Sabrina just said. Jesus was mighty in word in the authority of his teaching. And so please turn to Matthew 7. I want to read a couple verses there. Who would be willing to read Matthew 7 verses 28 through 29? Nice and loud. Oh, thank you, Matthew. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Yeah, good. So how was, from what you guys know, how was Jesus' teaching different than that of the scribes? Sabrina already spoke to this. Would you add anything? How was Jesus' teaching different than that of the scribes? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I, I think absolutely with the first thing you said, they the scribes wore they were dependent on tradition. They're always quoting what their ancestors said. Um, you know, they're they're constantly referencing the views of other rabbis. And, and so you're right when you say that a lot of it was man made. That's good. Would anyone else add anything else? Yeah. yeah. I mean, just to add to that, I'll just go to John. Yeah. Speaking the word of God, the scribes aren't speaking that. They're just putting their traditional spin on it. Yeah. Focusing on the law, focusing on the rules. Yeah. It's Christ's word. So he has that authority. He has that Yeah. Like yeah. Amen. That's so good. Yeah. It's amazing. He had this authority. He is the Lord. He is the Son of God. God the Son. And so the Old Testament prophets, they had to say... When they had a message from God, they had to say, thus saith the Lord. Because to just like speak as God, of course they wouldn't do that. They're God's spokesman. 
But Jesus, Jesus never said, thus saith the Lord. He didn't have to. He didn't need to say that to demonstrate that it was God's word because Jesus' very word is God's word. And so Jesus doesn't use that messenger formula. He can just say, truly, truly, I say to you. And, and this formula is unique to him. It grants certainty to his words. And when you think about it, only God can have the kind of certainty here because Jesus, as God, is, he is the very truth of God. He gives life to those who acknowledge him as the way to God. And so it's, of course, Jesus is in a different category than Moses, Elijah, any of the other prophets. And we see that even in how he speaks. I was just thinking, yeah. you know, um, you know, if you get the opportunity to speak with a general witness, mm. um, you know, I, I've often gone to the passage with Doubting Thomas, you know, oh, where he says, yeah. oh, my Lord and my God. Yeah. But I think that this is even, you know, can be added to that too. Just look how he never said, you know, contrasting that with the other prophets. Yeah. Look how he never says that. Instead, yeah. he just says truly, truly. So I, I think that's just a really strong, yeah. Um, yeah. strong point that I hadn't really thought of too much, you know? Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge, yeah, huge proof for his divinity. Absolutely. Good. Yeah, and I, and I also want to point out that Jesus was not afraid to speak the truth. You know, he had his gentle and lowly moments, but... But he said difficult things before large crowds. In, in Luke 11, when the crowds are increasing, Jesus states, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so when great crowds accompanied him, he'd say things like, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And so we see Jesus in, in the vein as, as the prophets of old, also willing to speak the truth even when it was met with the anger, the, the, dis, the dislike of the crowds. Jesus spoke words of judgment concerning the scribes and Pharisees because they failed to practice what they preached. They piled heavy burdens on the people. See that in Matthew 23. And so here we see Jesus being the perfect covenant enforcer, just like the prophets of old. And of course, I want to remind us too, the, the disobedience of God's people at this time was, was all the more terrible because they were sinning against so much grace. God had delivered them from Egypt way back. He'd given them the land. And even after they'd been exiled for their sin, he had at least partially restored them to the land. Um, they'd been chosen as his special people and given his law, his special revelation. And yet they still sinned against all this grace. And that's why Jesus' rebukes to the people at the time, especially the Pharisees, it was... It was all the more serious. They, they were not ignorant in their disobedience. And yet we see that also Jesus offers salvation 
to those who will receive the truth, even as he offers covenant judgment to those who reject it. And so there he, he stands in line with prophets like Isaiah too. Isaiah's message was rejected by many, leading to hardened hearts, yet Isaiah also spoke of a coming day of salvation and restoration. Jesus speaks the truth because the words of truth will sift the people, separating those who are serious about being disciples and those who are not. He's the covenant mediator who prosecutes the covenant against and indicts those who reject God's word. But yet, think of how Jesus is greater than any of the prophets who go before because he's not just prosecuting this covenant. Jesus inaugurates and establishes a new covenant. Hear the word of the Lord in Luke 22. During the Last Supper, as Jesus takes the cup to distribute it, he says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So like Moses, he who was the initial mediator of a covenant between God and his people, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant between God and his people. We have a few minutes left, and next week we're going to continue to talk about Jesus as the ultimate prophet. We're going to talk about him being mighty in deed, him being a prophet mighty in suffering even. Um, But right now, I hope you're already seeing that in way more ways than we could even imagine, Jesus, there's so many connections here between the Old Testament prophets, the office of prophet, and Jesus as the ultimate perfect prophet sent for our salvation to reveal the way of salvation to us. So yeah, I want to I wanna just close and open it uh, for any questions. Are there any questions or comments you guys have? How is Jesus a prophet like Moses in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18? You can answer that unless you have a question or a thought of your own. If there's no thoughts there, I have, here's a better question. So Jesus demonstrates his authority, right, in his use of the word of God. We just talked about that. So what are the implications of his message compared to those of other religions? What are the implications of Jesus as the ultimate and final prophet? What are the implications of his message because of that? Any thoughts there? to the next what the people are supposed to do um, so I think you know when we look at the Bible we have this meta narrative mm. and then we can yeah. go all the way through the Old Testament and now with the New Testament we can see the fulfillment of Christ mm. and we don't and it's yeah. one cohesive story 
Yeah. Um, just, you know, through many different forms of literature, whether it's poetic or, you know, mm. um, civil or what have you. Yeah. Um, so there's just this richness to it um, when you see that all these four shadowing types find their fulfillment in Christ. Um, there's nothing like that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, obviously yeah. my, you know, my mother yeah. being Middle Eastern, but Armenian, so uh, um, Christian among Muslims, um, they just, they just don't have that, that hope. They don't even really understand. Mm. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's, yeah, Andre. I feel like uh, understanding that Jesus, sorry, I'm down, come over here. Um, I feel like understanding that Jesus is the ultimate prophet makes it easy to, like, reject someone like Joseph Smith, like, um, of Mormonism. Yeah. I think he came later on. Yeah. Um, saying that, you know, just things that contradict what Christ said. Yeah, yeah. If you have an understanding that he was the ultimate prophet, he was the last one. Um, we can always have like a firm foundation of what he said to, yeah. to, to be able to reject anything new that comes up. Yeah, so. yeah, amen. That's really good. Yeah. As, as God, as Lord, we can have full confidence in what Jesus says and, and full confidence that he is our mediator. He, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And so, yeah, I think that's worth continuing to think about as the week goes on. I was just going to say that yeah. it's the, the resurrection of Jesus that confirms that. And going back to how do we tell that a prophet was mm. a prophet or not, he said that he would die and be raised from the dead. And yeah. Died. And so that's, like, that's really a confirmation of everything that he has yeah. said Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. There's so many plot spoilers in the Gospels. Jesus is always saying, I'm going to die. To rise again many many times before it happens and yeah like matthew said it that is a vindication of all vindications of who he is and his victory over sin death and the devil so that's a that's a great fitting note to conclude on uh let us pray um father we we praise you uh for our perfect prophet priest and king jesus christ Help us to see him more clearly and treasure him. And as we go uh, to, to the main service, Lord, would you just soften our hearts? Help us to receive your word as it's preached, as, as your very words. And would you help us to receive it with faith and obedience and just open our eyes uh, by your spirit. Um, we, we pray for this grace. Uh, we, we need you. And uh, we ask that our worship would be acceptable to you for the sake of Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Thank you, guys. You are dismissed.